This morning in the Atlanta airport, no one's missing a meal on Mac Wilburn's watch. With 11 restaurants to serve passengers, he's got dining for every destination. And it all started when Mac talked with First Horizon Bank about opening a franchise in the airport. Now it's open for business and cleared for takeoff. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Mac. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Tonight in Arkansas, there's a mother tucking in her daughter and turning off the light. A business owner is burning the midnight oil. An at-home dinner date is plating up possibility. And it's all happening under one roof. How? The power of a conversation. Like the one John from Integrity Solutions had with First Horizon Bank about his vision for a sustainable mixed-use building. Now it's not just words, it's life. First Horizon Bank. Let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash John. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Marketing is everywhere. From the billboards on the highways to the notifications on your phone, we are constantly bombarded with people trying to sell us stuff. What makes good marketing? Are you doing enough in your life personally and professionally to market yourself? You have questions and the Marketing Mad Men have answers. Search the Marketing Mad Men on Google or your favorite podcast provider to get practical marketing advice from expert guests who are shaping and reshaping the business world. They say marketing is a madman's game. Join the Marketing Mad Men every Saturday at 4 p.m. to find out why. All right, everybody, welcome to this week's edition of Welcome to Matlana. I would be Matt or Matlana. I didn't give myself the nickname. I earned the nickname. Let's not waste any time. Let's get to this week's edition of Welcome to Matlana. All right, so uh, we know about John Smoltz, the, uh, the Major League Baseball player and the pitcher, and we've heard all these stories about John the athlete. So what was your second best sport when you were growing up? Second best uh, would have been basketball. Was there ever an inclination basketball. to do more with it? Yeah, actually, basketball is my first love. I mean, that's what I enjoyed playing more was basketball. And, you know, I always had visions of playing at Michigan State. And when I signed to go there, they had agreed to let me play, you know, basketball and baseball. Um, my high school basketball playing days were phenomenal. I enjoyed every bit of it. I think it prepared me for, for baseball and what I would become known later you know, and, and just some of the bigger moments. But basketball definitely was not the time that I, I could, you know, I didn't devote the time that I did to baseball. And, of course, I realized when I reached my uh, my junior and senior year playing in an all-state basketball game where my game ranked with everybody else's, and I went home saying, I guess baseball is going to be the future. <laughs> That's the eye-opener. Um, so yeah. tell me, like you had a little bit of a double-edged sword. I say only, I mean, you were a 22nd round draft pick just to get drafted at all is a huge deal, but it's from the hometown Tigers. So what was, was it bittersweet? It was, it was not a a good time for me when I was told, you know, you know, probably first to third round type selection. I did things in a way where I, I knew where I wanted to go to college. I didn't want to drag that on. I didn't want to take a bunch of trips. Um, so I signed really early to go to Michigan state. I was going to be their first ever full scholarship in baseball. Uh, the coach at the time was Tom Smith and he was fantastic throughout the whole process. I didn't get the call till later 22nd round that it re, you know, that just reaffirmed I was going to college. 
I had the greatest summer baseball you could have. Uh, I guess you would say I had a chip on my shoulder. Played in the Triple ABA in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, the Stan Musial World Series. Played against the top competition you can play in, and had a fantastic summer, which increased my stock just from not your ordinary twenty-second round pick. So I went. This went on for three and a half weeks, negotiating with the Tigers. Picked out my class, my dorm. Um, was all set to go to Michigan State. Was excited about the opportunity. And kept telling the Tigers that I wasn't going to sign unless I got first-round money. And, of course, early in the process, that was ridiculous to them. And later in the process, it became more of a reality. And literally, Sunday night, around 9 o'clock, I signed a contract with Detroit, equivalent of about first-round money. And Monday morning would have been my first appearance on campus. And uh, that's how literally close my life was going in two separate directions, train, changed so dramatically that instead of going to college on Monday and Tuesday and you know getting with my dorm roommates and setting up my classes, I was on a plane to New York to join the New York Yankees and the Tigers. The Tigers were playing the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, and I was joining the big league club for the remainder of the season to work out with them, my team that I idolized, and because there was no every all the minor leagues rookie ball all that had been passed, so it was one of the most unique journeys, and one of the most really tough mental times that um, I had to make decisions. You know, split that would that would change my life forever. How uh, overwhelming or sort of unbelievable? Because you said you grew up with that team, and if if I, if my math is right on that era, that's Kirk Gibson and Jack Morris and Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell. How yeah. crazy was that? It was, so I'd never been out of the state other than, than playing baseball. Like I'd never been on on my own. So here I'm going to New York, New York City of all places. I, I remember staying at the Grand Hyatt where the Tigers were. They, that was when they first gave those credit cards for room keys. Never seen those before. <laughs> and uh, I had to follow the uh, bullpen coach kind of catcher wherever, I, you know, I was a fish out of water. I got on the team bus uh, you know, these are all the guys I, I can tell you everything about them. They knew nothing about me. I would go work out with the pitching coach, big league pitching coach during the day. I would be with batting practice. I would hang in the outfield. And when the game started, I would get dressed, go in the stands. The game would end. I would go into the clubhouse, get on the team bus and go back. Um, it was surreal. It was like, I got a taste of big league life before it even, even, you know, you know, no one else could have probably experienced what I experienced. I I sat on the on the on the next to Sparky Anderson. Um, you know, I, I was I remember you know Jack Morris walking into the clubhouse, kind of ragging me when I laughed at a joke that somebody said. He says, oh, "It's real funny. You'll be wanting to take our job someday." <laughs> the classiest guy in all of sports, Alan Trammell. As I sat in the locker room when I came back to Detroit. He came up to me and he shook my hand, and you know, when I first got there, and he said, "Listen, I'm, you know, I'm Alan Trammell. Anything I could do, anything you need, you just let us know. You let me know." And I'm like, "Wow!" So it was, it was, it also kind of crushed my ability to think I was a pretty good pitcher because for two weeks I never got a chance to really throw to a catcher. All I did was drills. All they did at that point, Billy Muffett broke down my entire mechanics. 
and told me all the things I was doing wrong. And I remember calling my dad saying, I don't think I'm very good because they think my mechanics are all messed up and changing everything. I was confused. It was, it was a wild time when I think back to those years, that one month I spent with the defending world champions that were trying to uh, get back to the playoffs and consequently didn't that following year. All right, well, two things. Do you remember, A, the signing bonus when you finally inked, and then where was your first stop on minor league ball? Yeah, so uh, it was $90,000 and then a package of another 10000 that was spread out over the two years of my minor league career. That was the sticking point that, that I was kind of holding out for. Uh, the first-round pick for the Yank- for the Tigers that year was Randy Nosek, and he got $100,000 and really didn't have – they didn't have a high school baseball program, so he didn't play high school baseball. And I went to uh, Lakeland, Florida, the big league camp. It was Class A. And I remember, you know, getting to big league camp and actually fairly soon was throwing big league batting practice to guys that I idolized when the big league pitching coach was telling me what I was doing wrong as I was throwing batting practice. I almost hit Lou Whitaker. I almost hit Tom Brookins. <laughs> you know, it was just this whole – I mean, there's such a lineage of my grandfather working at Tiger Stadium on the ground crew for 18 years. You know, up to, He was working for the Tigers upwards to 18 and 20 years from the ground crew to the press room to you name it. So it was like a dream come true that I was going to play in my home city and all of Michigan, you know, all of Lansing, Michigan was going to see me pitch. And, and all of this journey and pressure and everything and where I was going wasn't going well. I was struggling. I, I was trying to figure out what kind of pitcher based on my mechanical changes, based on not being able to throw strikes. I was kind of a mess. And then the trade happened, and that even threw me more for kind of a loop of uh, the mental anguish of being not wanted. Well, I want to ask you about that in a second, but like you said, two things. I always wonder about a minor leaguer, and I asked, I think I asked Chipper Jones about this and a few of your other teammates. Like, you get to a, a place where these other players are as good as you. You were probably better than everybody in high school. When is the realization that everybody around you is just as good? And like you said, you all these people kind of messing with your mechanics. How much did that get into the, to the mental side of it? Yeah, so you get to what was instructional league was my first stop before my first level of pro ball, which was Lakeland. So you get to instructional league, and that's where you find out there's some of the elite guys of all the, you know, that's where they take their top talent. And you go, wow, man, some of these guys, uh, you know, older than me, they can play. And you start seeing the development of some of the uh, talent that the Tigers were kind of accruing. And and I just wanted to make myself you know, I wanted to be able to check in myself, and I'll never forget my first strike. First pitch in, in instruction league, I threw over the guy's head, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, come on. Calm down, calm down. Next pitch was going right at him, and he got out of the way, but it hit his bat. And that was my first strike, and I went, oh, okay, I can do this now, you know, and tried to settle down. But you try to find your way, and you look around you, to your point, and you're like, there's a lot of guys, big league temp, talent. We had eight projected major league prospects on our first team in Lakeland, Florida. And we finished in last place, 30 games out. And I got hurt after a really good start to my campaign. Uh, and I spent six to seven weeks on the DL. And I think, I think I finished seven and eight in my rookie year. And then the double a year I go up because I went to instructional league those two years and kept making improvements to get elevated to the next level. Same thing, eight, 10 prospects, 
dead last, and then I get traded in the middle of that season in Glens Falls, New York. So I was I was not blessed there with a lot of, uh, you know, my thought of coming to big leagues and going to the minor leagues, I'm going to get a plethora of all kinds of coaching. They didn't have any. They did not have a pitching coach in their minor league system other than Rover. It was John Hiller and Ralph Truel. Those were the only two pitching coaches in the entire farm system of the Detroit Tigers. We had one manager, no coaches. That's crazy. And so here I am trying to figure out baseball on my own, throwing bullpens of 40 minutes, trying to figure out what's going on on my own with an occasional uh, Rover that would come in. Fast forward to getting drafted or traded to the to Atlanta Braves, and they had an overkill of coaches. It was the greatest thing that could happen to me personally because I was so confused from what I thought was a pretty good mechanics, was pretty good uh, pitcher to totally rechanging everything that I thought or knew based on the direction that the Tigers were going. So it couldn't have come at a better time to get to the Atlanta Braves and see like 10 coaches in the instructional league and go, whoa, you know, this is totally different. The Tigers had a model back then that the 1927 Yankees didn't have it, so we didn't need it. And it was it was kind of bare bones and get after it. And the manager of that particular team did everything. He threw BP. He coached third. I coached first a lot. We rotated players. We, we were short in so many areas that I think, obviously, the Detroit Tigers made some changes after, after – uh, some quite time that that wasn't going to be able to work well i want to ask you about the trade because hindsight is great to look back and as you said it's the best thing that could have happened but in the moment right you said not wanted it's got to be devastating at your hometown when you get that phone call i mean what is the range of emotions right then yeah i was shocked i didn't i didn't see it coming i know i was struggling the team was struggling i think i was three and 11 at the time or some crazy thing i had a five era and we were we stunk as a team um, Tommy Burgess was our manager, really loved him. And I, and I got this note. I'll never forget the, where I was sitting in the club dugout of Lens Falls, New York. I got a note, actually got two notes. First note was call home immediately. And then the second note was call the Detroit front office. Well, I called home immediately cause I thought something was wrong. And my dad answered and I was like, what's going on, you know? And he goes, oh, nothing, you know, you've just been traded. My dad's kind of a jokester and a prankster, and I'm like, Dad, it's not funny. I'm not having a good year. It's not really something I want to hear. He goes, no, I just heard it on the news. You've been traded for Doyle Alexander. And I was getting kind of really frustrated with him and said, Dad, I'm going to come home and, and uh, you know, I'm going to mess you up if you're jacking with me. And and I saw this other note in my hand. I said, i got to call you back. And I called uh, Detroit, and I, they told me the news. And I just sat there in the locker room and didn't say anything afterwards, trying to soak it all in, told my manager I'd just been traded. He was like, what? And I had to make this journey from Glens Falls, New York, to Richmond, Virginia, and my red Z24 Cavalier, yeah. Cavalier that I bought with my signing bonus. <laughs> my dad offered to fly down and drive with me. I said, no, it's something i got to do on my own. i got a lot of thinking to do, about a 12-hour drive. And when I drove down, I did. I did a lot of soul searching. Um, I was frustrated, didn't know what it meant, thought I was, you know, on this journey to, to pitch in my hometown team, and then they didn't want me. But then I had to realize that somebody else wanted me. And when I got to Richmond, the facility there at that time, that's how long ago it was, was like a big league field compared to where I had been. And I was excited. 
the opportunity to pitch in a new organization that needed pitching. And it really kind of renewed my energy. And, and um, you know, that team that I went to was horrible. Richmond at that time with Roy Matika. I mean, you talk about I didn't think I could go to a worse team than Glens Falls. I went to a worse team. And I I had this, you know, I started thinking about what I was – my goals were to be in the big leagues. So that wasn't going to change. But then you start going, are you ever going to win? Like, are you going to be part of a winner? Because I'd been on nothing but losing teams uh, in my professional experience. And and then, of course, the rest is history. I made the track, uh, went to Instructional League again with the, with the Braves. That's where everything turned around for me and I could be myself. And I got a chance to develop into, you know, the pitcher because the time that I was able to pitch in allowed for that. This wouldn't have happened today. I would have been branded pretty quickly as a bullpen guy. I probably never saw the rotation, never been given the patience. And like I said, everything that could happen for me happened for Glavin. You know, it happened for everybody that got the opportunity to learn under the gun, get your brains beat in and really develop into the pitcher that you always felt like you could be. And, um, wow, I just – I look back now and go, gosh, that was – I don't know what my future would have been in Detroit. I know I would have made it, but I don't think to the degree of, of anything close to the career I had with Atlanta. What did you know uh, about the city of Atlanta when you got the call, if anything, and what did you know about the organization? I knew nothing. I was an American League guy. I knew of I knew of this guy named Dale Murphy, and that was it. TBS. Um, all those things didn't register that my parents were actually going to get to see me play every game instead of just playing at home. Like, that started really exciting me. I didn't know anything about the city. I just knew that when we were kids driving down, going to Florida, our car broke down in Cartersville, Georgia. That's the only <laughs> thing I ever knew about Georgia, and it was not a good time of our lives. Right at New Year's Eve, we had to walk eight miles as a family before somebody could pick us up, and that was it. I, everything was a brand-new journey, um, you know, where to stay, how to get around, um, getting that call in Richmond, Virginia uh, to get called up was, was obviously incredible, and then to pitch – it's Shea Stadium on Tom Seaver Day, and my first debut was even more incredible. But, you know, I, it's a place that I don't think I'll ever move from. Uh, I've been there over 30 years now, raised a family there. I love it. Um, you know, I don't get back home to Michigan much. And so it's become, you know, selfishly growing up in, in Lansing, Michigan, and, and being a fan of the Tigers in that generation. I got a chance to see as a fan that Tiger teams stay together, grow together, and players play their whole career for them. So I made that a mission of mine that no matter where I started, I wanted to try to end where I started. And I almost accomplished that goal. I was oh so close because I really believe that was an important part of my life watching Trammell, Whitaker, you know, all the, the, the core of the, the Tigers primarily play their whole career with one team. And I said, man, if I get a chance, how cool would that be to make and set roots? Luckily, I never had to buy another house. I didn't have to be moved around. I think about my journey and I've just been blessed. I made a lot of choices to stay, but I also was wanted enough to be able to stay there and, of course, you know, I make no bones about it. The reason I stayed was because of one man, and that was Bobby Cox. I want to ask you about that in a second, but when you get the call, up, you said you went to Shane. If memory serves, you had a good outing in your professional or your major league I debut. Did. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I pitched. Uh, it was it was like it was yesterday. My first strikeout was Daryl Strawberry. I gave up one run in the first. I hit Lenny Dykstra my first batter and went eight innings and gave up one run against a Mets team that obviously was going to go on and play in the playoffs. Bruce Suter came in in a two to one game. We scored four in the ninth and got the win. I think six to one. And and I wanted time to just stop. My whole family was there. We went to a, I can't even remember the Italian restaurant, but it was a night of nothing could go wrong, right? And and then as as fate would have it, you got to go back to your job and you had to go back to Richmond, get all my stuff, come to Atlanta. And my second start was against the Reds, and it was even, you know, not as good, but I went into the ninth. I pitched in the ninth inning in a tie game uh, in my second start and, and gave up a, a home run, I think a three-run homer to lose it against the Reds, but in my first two starts, I was like, wow, I went eight, eight, and I was going, uh, you know, thinking about going nine, and then didn't get out of the third inning three starts in a row after that. <laughs> Life changed immediately. It's not that easy. Well, before I ask you about the Bobby and the transition with Bobby, um, do you remember where you lived? Do you remember what the city was like, like 87, 88? Because Atlanta, we know, has is, is obviously grown exponentially. What was life yeah. like for you off the field? Yeah, I remember it's a post apartment somewhere in the um, Windy Hills, you know, scenario over there. And, you know, it was a challenge getting around. I, I'd heard the stories about people getting lost on 285. That happened <laughs> to me. Not Luckily, not going to the stadium, but trying to go somewhere else. I went, wait a minute, I just saw this sign. Did I just make a complete circle? <laughs> and I did. And And I just, you know, luckily for me, personality, it was awesome to mesh with, with Glavin and Pete Smith, they kind of took me in. It was the, the times of Rick Mailer and Zane Smith and, you know, Bruce Benedict and the veteran-laden, you know, club that was there. And, and of course, getting a chance to play with Dale Murphy, the only recognizable name that I had known about, and the superstar, iconic guy. And I went, man, this is, this is he's more than what it appeared to be from the outside looking in. He's everything that you would think that a star big league player you'd want to be for your franchise so um everything was coming around because you could see the talent was coming but like i said earlier i just never knew i just didn't know if we were ever going to win i mean you lose 100 games your first two years and you're struggling to to find ways to to not be a laughing stock of your city and and then all of a sudden lo and behold you know the world goes upside down in atlanta and, and and we we shock everybody and and become really the team of the 90s. And it was it was pretty cool to look back and go, oh, not one person could say I saw that coming. Oh, not no, one person no. would even dare to say that, yeah, this young talent that Bobby had created in the in the minor leagues would develop all and the pitching would be dynamic. And it was it was pretty incredible um, to have it go the way it did. Home field advantage exists in baseball. Insurance, too. Your local Trusted Choice independent insurance agents are active members of your community. They'll always have your back. Find a local auto, home, or business insurance agent at TrustedChoice.com. Folks, you just heard from Smoltzy, and you heard it from me as well. Clayton Rhodes and the Rhodes Group are my trusted choice for insurance agents. They've been my agent for a long time, and they serve all of Metro Atlanta. To get up to 10 auto insurance quotes in less than 10 minutes, visit Rhodes-Group.com slash churnoff today. That's Rhodes-Group.com. Dot com slash churn off. 
It's a new year, which means it's time to try something new. And I'm talking to you folks who have not yet tried the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. I hope you'll go see my friend Sean Daly. That's, get it, the Daily Draft. This is the ultimate sports bar experience. So as the football playoffs near, and then baseball's around the corner, knock on wood, and all the fun springtime things that will happen in Atlanta, you're going to want to enjoy it at the Daily Draft. It's downtown Woodstock on Main Street. What you're going to find, a craft beer bar, self-serve taps, uh, big screens all around you to catch every view of the big game. And when I say a big screen, they have a movie-sized screen with a front-row seat right in front of it that you can grab if you get there at the right time to enjoy all your favorite games. A chef-inspired menu with soup, salad, sandwiches, flatbreads, uh, you name it, they have everything to find everybody exactly what they want when you're going with the family, a boys' night, or a date night. TheDailyDraft.net is where you can find all the information about some of the nights like Trivia Night, Kids Eat Free Night, and more. TheDailyDraft.net. Go find them downtown Woodstock on Main Street. Tell them Matt sent you. You'll love The Daily Draft. Well, as you mentioned, though, right, 87, 88, 89, 90, while you're starting to find the young talent, you guys did lose a ton of games. And then the transition happens as Russ Nixon was relieved of his duties and Bobby steps in. So, Take me through when Bobby steps into the the role of manager. Leo then comes in as pitching coach. What kind of um, first impression did they both make in that transition? Well, Leo was huge for me because when I came over to the organization, he was the first one that I dealt with at the at the instructional league, and then I had him in AAA, and he simplified the whole process for me. So it, it really was a matter of simplicity that that allowed me to flourish. There was no magic potion or no – he just really gave me confidence that my delivery was good and that we just needed to improve our pitching, uh, the meaning the pitches that I had. Bobby was a no-nonsense general manager. It was easy to work with him. He wasn't going to take much time, and he was a no-nonsense uh, uh, manager. So from the GM spot to the manager spot, you realize that this is a guy who had a ton of experience, trusted the process, and treated you like a, a, an adult. And – and I, and I just – it was such innate ability he had to lead. I don't even think he would ever talk about breaking it down of what it meant to lead men, but he had it. And uh, he knew what it took in a baseball season and how hard it was. And I, I remember times where I would just sit back and go, why does he take all the grief he takes? Why is he got allowing certain players – to be the reason why he's getting blamed and he never says anything about it. And then it all came full circle when he would get out in front, take the bullets, take the criticism in the media, be blamed for X, Y, Z that had no business being blamed for, but he knew that if he could shield and allow his players to play, that he was, that he could take that. And you, you just have no idea what appreciation a player has when he knows that they're the reason and that yet it's never going to come out that they're the reason. And he believes in them. And I can say this without any doubt that you would never have heard of John Smoltz if it weren't for the 1991 season that he instilled the confidence and the guts to leave me in the rotation when I had come off of two pretty good years on a bad team. And one of those was went to the All-Star game. And now I start out 1991, 2-11. And, the, you know, it was – I heard everything you could hear, and, and everyone wanted me out of the rotation. All the coaches were trying to basically get me out based on what I was not doing. And Bobby said, no, he's a click away. He's not a 2-11 and pitcher. And he changed the course of my career by sticking – and, you know, I don't think he would have stuck the whole second half if I stayed that way. But, you know, the rest is history. I go 12-2, and two and I pitched the, the clincher and 
at home on Saturday against the Astros, the clincher against the the Pirates, and, of course, the the seventh game. And no one, no one would have been able to stick in there and and give a 2-11 guy that kind of chance. Well, John, and I don't know if you remember this. So Leo was on, and he says he distinctly distinctly remembers a story where Bobby sat you down with Tom, and he said maybe it was Pete Smith, and it might have been after – Avery came up in 90 where he said, you guys are going to be my starters for the rest of this season, and you'll go into spring training as a part of the rotation, so don't worry about the ups and downs. And Leo thought that was even a jumping-on point for a lot of the young guys that they didn't have to look over their shoulder. No doubt. I mean, there is so much that that meant to us that, look, we were, we were trying to find a way to get better. And once the team got better and we were able to put in our time, you – not every pitcher could have gone through that with a with a personality difference and been able to handle getting your brains beat in. But Bobby knew who we were, knew what made us tick, and knew the potential that existed. And I'm telling you, as a unit, there's no better feeling in the world than to have somebody feel like he's got your back and will do everything he can. Every athlete knows if you don't get it done, you don't want somebody – on your behalf saying, oh, yeah, he really, you know, coming up with excuses. We had to get it done, but it, it was essential for me. Um, I'm one of the most, you know, I, I I traditionally consider myself one of the most loyal people in the world. And, and when somebody goes way out of their way to, to show that they believe in you and they know that you're going to be the guy that you want to be, that's, that was an easy decision for me to try and stay every chance I could. You know, once that 1991 season came about, and and look, there were some misleading stories of what 1991 was for me with the whole sports psychologist thing and how it created such a a story of its own. You, like no one interviewed me 1991 about what I had gone through and even what the story was. The story was too big, and the sports psychologist was getting too much credit that eventually I had to you know stop the presses and turn the page and go look. This is not that big a deal. If you guys want to know what went on, let me just tell you the simplistic philosophy that I had made a a major change in my life that cost me major on the baseball field. I let a negotiations in the offseason affect my perspective in the, you know, I went out trying to show John Scherholz why the decision he made with my contract was the wrong one. And I got into a funk. And it was a simple way to get out. And, and you know, I never thought twice about it. But the story was too good in 1991 for people to think that we, we got to roll with this. This is, this is unbelievable. This must have been a guy laying in a, in a, in a chair and a, just having a TikTok over him and transformed him. That's not the case. <laughs> and Bobby knew that. And that's what was so great about that year is that he knew if you go look back – that game Saturday I pitched was not a great game. And I, he let me go nine innings. I think I gave up five runs and pitched nine innings against the Astros and, and finished it out. Now the other two games, I didn't give up any runs, but there wouldn't have been many people in a clinching situation allow me to stay in that game and finish it out. And that's what he basically told, you know, the pitching staff, it's yours until you guys can't do it. And then we'll go get somebody else. John, do you have a different perspective now looking back? Because from you know, getting a chance to talk to athletes to me is is so interesting because you guys are the best at what you did when you got to that level. I don't care if you ever pitched in the postseason or not. 
you pitched in April in the big leagues in a stadium that had 50,000 seats. That's amazing. But for you, that on the biggest stage in those biggest moments, you were able to slow your heart rate down, handle the moment, and you said you loved getting the ball more than anybody else in those spots. Looking back, are you kind of a little bit awe that such a young guy could handle those stages? Yes and no. And I say that only because you never know if your dreams are going to match up, your aspirations are going to match up with your dreams. I put myself in a situation as a kid all the time. I literally drove every scenario you could drive on the street of Lansing, Michigan, in front of a brick wall. And I did it. In my mind, I pitched it. I was the hero. I was the big game pitcher. I believed it. Now, now, when you you got to be able to match that up with the intense, you know, the ability to execute. So, believing it's one aspect, but I was confident that if he gave me an opportunity in those situations, that those situations wouldn't be too big for me. And I just, I, I can't explain it other than I loved the moment. The moment for me did not become too big to where my heart rate and everything I did would race. And, you know, not many guys would be given an opportunity like I was given to do that over and over and over again. And, and there's, there's one thing I'm most proud of is there might have been one or two just clunkers in the middle of those 25 or however many opportunities I had in the postseason. You can't rest. Like, you can you can have a, a 20 and 5 campaign and come back the next year and maybe be mediocre and you have that length of rope that the year before gave you. Every postseason game, you can't live on the previous. There's nothing that gives you any you, – you're, you're judged every single time on that moment. And uh, I, I, I loved it so much that I was willing to give up, you know, regular season accolades to be able to just pitch in more of them. And, and I just thought that, that that's what I was, you know, meant to do. That was what I was – my – that's what I always believed I could do. And, and, and I'm still trying to do that in other areas of my life, but I'm not afraid to be exposed to learn whatever I need to learn to be better. And, you know, those were, those were moments um, that I, I just, I absolutely loved. I'd take a nap before those games. Like I was so relaxed that I never forget taking naps before the game seven in Pittsburgh and then taking a nap in the World Series in Game 7 before I missed the speech, you know, that, that Ted game. I, I, I just was in the corner in the in the training room taking a nap, woke up, got ready, walked out. I said, here we go. That's this crazy. is what it's about. That's and crazy. it was so much fun for me that, you know, obviously I would have loved to have won a few more of those for us to win a more, few more championships. But, gosh, what a – to live those out in the fulfillment of what you had dreamt as a kid was incredible. Can you put into words what being a champion feels like either moments after, weeks after, years later? Yeah, it's it's something that, you know, it's hard to do. And I am I'm envious of people who have multiple championships because that's always what I thought we could do. And I really believed when you win something like that um, – there are times where sports allows you to act like a fool. And that's one of them. Dog pile, you're a five-year-old, you just jump all over everybody. It is that, that the next 48 hours are irrelevant. The city goes crazy. Um, you know, you have this euphoric feeling for what's a long season of, of accomplishments of leaving spring training with the hope that you could end your season on a win. And when you do, um, 
the whole team becomes a bigger unit. Um, you're, you're part of something for the rest of your life. And, you know, the ones that get to do it multiple times, it never gets old. And that's why 96, there's no doubt in my mind, no doubt in my mind we win in 96. We'll be talked about as one of the greatest runs instead of the Yankees. But it didn't happen, and the Yankees went on that four out of five, and and they're talked about as one of the greatest teams ever in that period. So that's what sports is, is at moments, I mean, seconds away from something great happening. It can rip your heart out, but I'd rather have it that way than never, ever, ever having a chance and just thinking of the what-ifs and could-have-beens. Um, but there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't think about 96, that I don't wonder what our organization would have been like, the lack that we wouldn't have made some of the moves we made, but it is part of what makes sports unique. Hey, are you tired of shopping your car and home insurance every single year? Well, somebody's got to do it, but that somebody doesn't have to be you. At the Rose Group, we can get you up to 10 insurance quotes in less than 10 minutes. Visit us online today at roads-group.com. It's a new year, which means it's time to try something new. And I'm talking to you folks who have not yet tried the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. I hope you'll go see my friend Sean Daly. That's, get it, the Daily Draft. This is the ultimate sports bar experience. So as the football playoffs near, and then baseball's around the corner, knock on wood, and all the fun springtime things that will happen in Atlanta, you're going to want to enjoy it at the Daily Draft. It's downtown Woodstock on Main Street. What you're going to find, a craft beer bar, self-serve taps, big screens all around you to catch every view of the big game. And when I say a big screen, they have a movie-sized screen with a front-row seat right in front of it that you can grab if you get there at the right time to enjoy all your favorite games. A chef-inspired menu with soup, salad, sandwiches, flatbreads, uh, you name it, they have everything to find everybody exactly what they want when you're going with the family, a boys' night, or a date night. TheDailyDraft.net is where you can find all the information about some of the nights like Trivia Night, Kids Eat Free Night, and more. TheDailyDraft.net. Go find them downtown Woodstock on Main Street. Tell them Matt sent you. You'll love The Daily Draft. You said you stayed and you were glad you did throughout the prime of your career. Were you ever close? Did you entertain anywhere else? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there were there were many times um, in that I thought for sure I was going to be a Yankee after, 90, after 1996, for sure. Um, always last minute buzzer, worked it out at the end. Um, we didn't have the easiest of negotiations. I didn't understand why. I was a free agent three or four times, but that's the nature of the business and Ultimately, until, you know, the end, when I wanted to get back on the field, I made every effort to try and figure out a way and hope that it would work to end my career with Atlanta. And it just wasn't in the cards for them. And I could appreciate that. You know, at that time, uh, Glavin was trying to come back, too, from injury. And we were going to compete for a spot in spring training without much guarantees. I'm like, the heck with that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, for me, uh, to end it the way I did was set personally satisfying because a guy is – look, I, there's a good chance I could have kept playing after 09, um, but it was only going to be with, with two teams. It was only going to be with St. Louis or Atlanta. And it, it ended up being great the way it ended up. Uh, a lot of people in my circle thought I'd have a hard time walking away from the game as competitive as I was, as much as I loved to compete. 
but it became an easy process for me and then really worked right into a unique opportunity to be a broadcaster. And, you know, I never looked back, but uh, to get back on the field was really important to me. I mean, I pitched in Atlanta hurt a lot and I, and I live, I'm paying for some of that physically right now, but that's, that I wouldn't, wouldn't trade anything, but I, I went through a lot to pitch and, and, and poured everything I had to give you what I had at that moment. And, and literally uh, squeezed in a 21-year career with minimal time off with those monosurgeries that I had. And so that's why it was important for me to get back and walk off on my own terms. I know a lot of people didn't understand it um, when you play that long, but I, I worked so hard after a major shoulder surgery to pitch effective, and that's all I needed for me. I would have loved to have done it in Atlanta, but I understand why it didn't work. I just wish it would have been a better ending from a PR standpoint and how it went down, but that's all in the past now. And, and, uh, you know, I, as, as I, I look back at my career, it it was an amazing journey that, um, I don't think it could, could be, uh, could be compared to anyone else's journey. I mean, it really, it really had so many twists and turns and position changes and arm angles and you name it. But, but it was one that, um, you never look back and thinking you wish you would have done or you wish you would have given more. There was nothing more I could have given, and that's why I was so satisfied with when it ended. John, as we finish up, you said you could nap before a, a, a clinching Game 7 performance. So I, maybe I know the answer. What was more nerve-wracking, getting the ball in those games or making that speech at Cooperstown in the Hall of Fame? Making the speech. Not even close. Um, you know, there's – I've always said that if, if somebody told me when I was getting the ball on the mound that we the last game I ever pitched and it was, you know, life or death, that that is totally different atmosphere than knowing that it isn't the, the end of life. You know, it's like not life or death. You're just pitching a game, you win or lose. When you stand up there, that speech is only given one time and you're only going to be given that one chance to try and squeeze in a lifetime of memories and, and appreciation and hopefully a message that will echo and somebody will remember uh, more than your playing career. And so that was, uh, I took a lot of chances, um, but I also used that platform to get across a couple of points that I really wanted to get across. And uh, ultimately uh, with the exception of leaving out one spot in my speech, I took my eyes off my notes for one spot and, and it was it was not getting Ted Turner's name in there. That was the only thing that really bothered me. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, it wasn't the people in front of the stage that I was looking out at. It was the people behind me that I couldn't believe I was in front of. And that is kind of when you stand there, you, you can't believe the sea of people. You can't believe this is happening. And anyone who really knows me, my entire career, there wasn't one ounce of energy I spent thinking about the Hall of Fame. And there wasn't one thing that I ever did in baseball to improve my chances to get to the Hall of Fame. And when it gets that way and it happens that way, it's such an overwhelming feeling because that's not who I am. That doesn't define who I am. I'm not consumed by that i know a lot of players get that way and are consumed it's their destiny it's where they want to get to it's an end game but if that was the case i would have done some things totally different in my career that ultimately probably would not have allowed me in one way or another to achieve that if that was a goal of mine so um 
yeah, that that was more nerve wracking, um, and and certainly uh, much more of um, wanting to get that right versus other things that I did in my life. Well, John, the accolades speak for themselves, and I think our listeners know you're not done. You have the uh, the golf aspirations, certainly in the in the TV booth. The success continues, MLB Network as well. Great stories. We could talk to you for hours, but uh, <laughs> I think you covered a great amount of stuff. Always enjoyable to catch up. Continued success. We appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, so much for taking the time to listen to this week's edition of Welcome to Atlanta. Thanks to our producer, Matt Lear, for his assistance with the program. He's the glue that keeps the operation running. We'll talk to you next week on Welcome to Atlanta. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play And we ride on them things like every day Big beats hit streets, see gangsters roaming And parties don't stop till 8 in the morning Welcome to Atlanta where the players play And we ride on them things like every day Big beats hit streets, see gangsters roaming uh-huh. Tonight in Arkansas, there's a mother tucking in her daughter and turning off the light. A business owner is burning the midnight oil. An at-home dinner date is plating up possibility. And it's all happening under one roof. How? The power of a conversation. Like the one John from Integrity Solutions had with First Horizon Bank about his vision for a sustainable mixed-use building. Now it's not just words, it's life. First Horizon Bank. Let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash john. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Marketing is everywhere. From the billboards on the highways to the notifications on your phone, we are constantly bombarded with people trying to sell us stuff. What makes good marketing? Are you doing enough in your life personally and professionally to market yourself? You have questions, and the Marketing Mad Men have answers. Search the Marketing Mad Men on Google or your favorite podcast provider to get practical marketing advice from expert guests who are shaping and reshaping the business world. They say marketing is a madman's game. Join the Marketing Mad Men every Saturday at 4 p.m. to find out why. The fan is ready for brave season. Are you? 3-1 smoked high in the air, deep center field, and heading for the horizon. A home run by Olsen. We're streaming every game of the Braves 2024 season free on the 680 The Fan app. So make sure you download it now and don't miss a pitch of the Braves this season.